0: Well, you might have noticed that uh, last week we ended with Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 4 and skipped over that and jumped straight into chapter 8 this morning. We didn't spend time developing the list of people that Nehemiah um, numbers there in the bulk of Nehemiah chapter 7. It's a list that a modern writer would probably put in the appendix of his book. Nehemiah put it there in the middle of his book. And there's a number of lists like that throughout the book of Nehemiah. What you need to know about that list in Nehemiah chapter 7 is that it was not a list of the people in Nehemiah's day. It was a list of the people who years earlier had come back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah wanted a reading of the record of those people for his current generation for a reason, for a purpose. And I think the purpose was that Nehemiah knew that for him to accomplish his objective of having a revival or renewal in Jerusalem, his current generation, was going to need to be as tough as the previous generation who had come back from Babylon to rebuild the temple. That generation was a tough group of volunteers and Nehemiah knew that he needed people like that for this current project. And reading that list or recounting that list to his current generation, would be similar to reading the names of soldiers who had died in battle to their distant relatives. It would inspire, for one, gratitude in the hearts of the hearers and also inspire action. I want to be like those people who came before. And Nehemiah knew that for them to become like that generation, one of the things that they would need to become was a word-centered people, and so enter Nehemiah chapter eight. In this passage that we just read, this new figure named Ezra arises to the surface. He comes in, he reads the Bible to everyone, and he and his team explain the Bible to everyone over a number of hours, and a revival breaks out among God's people. Now, if all we had was the book of Nehemiah, we might suspect that Ezra showed up with Nehemiah or even after Nehemiah, but that's not the case. The book of Ezra teaches us that that Ezra had actually already been in Jerusalem for 14 years declaring the word to God's people. I think in a sense you could say Ezra and Nehemiah, they made a great team. Ezra prepared the way for Nehemiah. 14 years of teaching the Bible, 14 years of declaring the truth so that when Nehemiah arrived and said, man, we gotta rebuild this city so the temple inside it can flourish, the people were primed because of Ezra's teaching. But Nehemiah, he also prepared the way for Ezra. In this passage, it says, that after repairing the walls, he built a wooden platform, and as the governor, called an assembly of the people so that Ezra could do his thing in declaring the word of God to the congregation. Now, through Ezra's work, we see a vivid example of how God renews his people with his word. The first thing that happened is they exalted the word. I mean, they heard it read and proclaimed, and they bowed down and worshiped the Lord because of it. They exalted the word. The second thing that that happened is they emotionally responded to the word, first with mourning, but then, because of Nehemiah's encouragement, with joy. And so the second movement we'll talk about today is how God renews us by helping us have joy because of the word. And finally and lastly, in the last movement of the passage, on the second day, they obeyed the word. They found this writing about the feast of the tabernacles and they did what they found in the word. And this is a crucial, vital step. We're not merely supposed to say, wow, the word was inspiring. Wow, I love the word. Wow, I have joy because of the word and then do nothing about it. No, we're to apply the word into our everyday lives and experience. If we want to experience the renewal of God, we will follow the same pattern that they lived out so many years ago. So let's think about those three movements in this passage. The first thing that we see in those first eight verses is that they exalted the word. What I mean by that is they had a high esteem and respect and desire to hear whatever God had to say. And what do I mean by that? How how did they exalt it and how can we exalt it? Well, one of the first ways they exalted the Word is that they recognized the authority of God's Word. This is found in a number of ways in this passage, the first one being what they called the Bible. Uh, They referred to the first five books of the Bible, God's Word, they referred to it as the the law. The law, that name kind of carries with it a connotation of authority. This isn't a suggestion from God these aren't guidelines from God this is the law of God in verse one they tell Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses in verse one it also says that they considered that law what the Lord had commanded not just Moses but God so Ezra in verse two brought the law to the people and in verse three, it says their ears were attentive to the book of the law. Other teachers helped Ezra by mixing into the crowd and in verse seven, helping the people understand the law. And finally, in verse eight, it says that they called the Bible the book, the law of God. But another way that the authority of the Bible was reflected in this passage was not just the way they referred to it as the law of God, but by the way they treated the book. I mean, first of all, they built a platform to elevate Ezra along with the book. And I don't think this was just a wise audio-visual mechanism there that day, a way to say, you know, we gotta get Ezra up above everybody so we've got good sight lines and we can hear what he's saying. It was partly that, but it was partly symbolism, a way to demonstrate their subservience to whatever God said. The book is above us, quite literally, in this moment. This is reinforced with the statement in verse four that says, Ezra was above all the people. And when Ezra opened the book in verse five, it says the people stood. And as he read and others explained that people lifted up their voices and their hands, bowed their heads, and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is respect for the word. And on top of all of this, the reading, it lasted around six Hours, from early morning until midday. I don't know if you've ever watched back-to-back Lord of the Rings movies, but that's about how long they stood there listening to Ezra read and explain the Bible to them. This is ultimate respect for the book. If you want to experience God's renewal in your life, his best for your life, you must have the utmost respect for his words. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This book, in other words, according to the Bible, is beautiful and worthy. It's worthy of its authoritative position over us because Only God is worthy of that position of authority in our lives. If you think about it, everyone, including yourself, is flawed. That means we are flawed as people to lead even ourselves. God, though, has a purity of motive and heart. He is perfect in all his ways, so his word is the greatest guide for our lives. It is is authoritative over us, not in a terrible way, but in a beautiful way because God is a better master than any of us could ever be over our own lives. But we should also notice that not only did they think of the word as authoritative, they also came that day with a strong amount of hunger for God's word. This was part of them esteeming the word highly. They were hungry for it. I mean, Ezra and Nehemiah are not presented in this passage as forcing anyone to be there that day. It says in verse one that it was the congregation that told Ezra to bring out the book. It's one of my favorite lines. Ezra, bring out the book. And they were willing, of course, to sit there for six hours listening to this Bible study. In verse three, it says that their ears were attentive to the book. When the book was open, they stood as a sign for them of respect. And as the word went out, they said, Amen, in agreement, lifted up their hands, bowed their heads, and worshipped the Lord. In other words, this was not a passive audience, but an engaged congregation. They craved the word and were hungry to have it declared to them. The wooden platform that they prepared for the occasion was emblematic of what was happening in their hearts. We've got a platform in our hearts for God's word. Each person there was internally prepared to hear the word. No one sat disengaged or listless while Ezra read from and explained the book because the people were hungry to consume all that God had said. Now, there are, of course, practical things, external things that we can do to give the Bible the highest chance of success in our lives. You know, they built a wooden platform for the occasion, and there are things that we can do in our own lives. I know for me, I don't know if you're like this, but I'm a very easily distracted person. And so when the smartphone was invented, it was like the worst invention ever for the way that my brain works. I have questions all the time, things I want to look up all the time. I am so easily distracted. So for me, as I start each day with a desire to get into the Word, to read it, to understand it, to apply it into my life, it is war right off the bat with the distractions that are so easily available to me each day. And I have to do certain things to make sure that my phone or other devices can't draw me away or draw me away less than they would if I had given them free reign in my life. And when we get together to study the Bible, we can do things like that. We can mute notifications on our phones. We try to set the temperature at the right level or the lights at the right level or the sound at the right level so that we can receive the word of God. And not only that, but Ezra and his team, they were prepared. Just like pastors and teachers should be prepared and ready to declare the word. But these are external ways to prepare. And none of it matters if the heart is not also prepared and hungry for God's word. When we come like they did with an attitude of submission, a humble heart and a high view of scripture, God's word has a better chance of impacting our lives. Okay, so they esteemed it highly, they hungered it, they thought of it as the authority in their lives, but they also, as they esteemed it, wanted to understand it. That's scattered all throughout the first movement as well. It says, in verse two, that the only people that came that day were men and women and all who could understand what they heard. They removed, in other words, the distractions of small children who weren't going to be able to track with what Ezra was doing during those six hours. The wooden platform was meant to make the word intelligible. Everyone wanted to hear what Ezra had to say. And a team joined him to help the people understand the law. They remained in their places, verse seven, Well, the teachers came to explain the Bible to them. And in verse eight, it says they read from the book from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And since understanding the word was the goal that day, the people were radically and substantially changed. This is seen in the way the word impacted the entirety of their physical form, their bodies. In the sixth verse, it says that the people answered with their mouths. Then they lifted up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. But hear me now, their feet, their mouths, Their hands and their faces were moved because they first understood with their ears. It was like this word went into their ears. Understanding came into their minds and it was reflected in the way that they moved their bodies. Before anything else, it says in verse three, their ears were attentive to the book. Now, I'm sure many of you are sitting there today going, this has got to be one of Nate's favorite chapters in the whole Bible because this is like a description of what he does. I mean, I love this. Just the idea of Ezra studying, reading, declaring the truth of God's word. And I do think that this chapter presents a strong case for biblical exposition. What do I mean by that? Well, biblical exposition is teaching the Bible in a way where it is clearly presented to God's people. It's a method of reading the Bible and then explaining the text that was read in order, and I think it's a method that has New Testament backing as well. Paul told Pastor Timothy this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. He said, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture Exhortation likely from whatever was just read and teaching likely from whatever was just read. Read it and exhort and teach from whatever you just read. And in Second Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul told Timothy, Preach the word. Paul didn't want Timothy to preach from the word or around the word or even about the word, he wanted Timothy to teach. The word, preach the word. You see, it's the Bible that must be declared to God's people. There's power in the simple presentation of God's word, there's power in expositional and theologically oriented teaching. But for many of us, we've had experiences where sermons are reduced to life hacks or comedy hours or dramatic or inspiring stories. And in instances like those, when the Bible is not presented, we have to ask, what true change can actually come in a person's life? We must first understand the Word, what the Word is saying. But not only does this passage build a case for expositional teaching, I think it also builds a case for personal Bible study in the life of every believer. You know, we live in an interesting time right now. We live in a time in the English-speaking Western world where the Bible and understanding the Bible has never been more accessible than it is right now. It is as easy to understand the Bible as it's ever been. So many translations are freely available to us. So many great and solid study guides are immediately available to us, freely distributed to us. Classes are available to us. There are so many ways for us to understand the Word. And not only that, but personal Bible study, which hasn't always been commended in every strain of Christianity, is now currently endorsed by every strain of Christianity on earth today. But the crazy thing is that learning the contents of the bible is still a largely neglected discipline theologian j.i packer he attributed this to a few causes the first two of the three that he mentioned were liberal theology which tells us that the bible should not be followed you can't take that book seriously and biblical criticism which tells us that the bible cannot be trusted But there's a third reason that he holds out that people don't discipline themselves to learn the word. He said it this way. He said, our culture tells us that apart from technical professional stuff, only a smattering of knowledge about anything is really needed to see us through. So that it would be rather naive for a Christian to spend much time learning details of any sort about Christianity. But the truth is that as the desire to learn what God has revealed in Scripture so that we may serve him by response to his word is spirit-given and enlivening, so a lack of willingness to do so is spirit-quenching and deadening. In a sense, what he's communicating is that if we want to experience God's renewal, we should never expect it without God's word. Now as for me, I'm grateful to be able to pastor a church like this one. Recently, I was up in Washington for a weekend spending time with a church, uh, doing some speaking. I think I talked to you about this particular fellowship. I did a men's conference and their Sunday morning services, but the church over the last couple of years has gone through rapid numerical growth. So I think they went from a church of 150 people to a church of 500 people within the span of a couple of years. And I could feel the pressure that the pastor and his team were under. You know, the church of 150 people, they were ready to handle counseling appointments or answer emails or uh, return phone calls and all that kind of stuff, you know, at that level and i could just feel as i spent time with him the pressure that he was under he was still trying to handle a church of 500 in the same way as he was leading a church of 150 people and in god's providence that sunday the lord had laid on my heart to teach psalm 1 to the congregation psalm 1 is about being a people who are blessed by god because we are meditating day and night upon his word and in the midst of that teaching, I felt compelled by the Spirit to encourage that particular congregation. I had made it my mission, knowing they'd grown so quickly, to ask every person I met that weekend, and I probably met 100 or 200 people, I wanted to ask them, why are you part of this church? And probably 95% of them said, because they're teaching the Word here. And I love that experience of being able to hear the word explained to me. So I encouraged the church on that morning. I said, hey, the thing that drew you here, the word, make sure that you allow this pastor to continue to devote himself to that work. Don't let him get spread so thin that he doesn't have time to put in the work to prepare so that he can declare the word of God to you. And I'm so thankful to pastor a church that has given me that space to be able to do that work. I haven't yet finished teaching the whole Bible, I hope to at some point, but over the last 14 years, I think I've taught 42 books of the 66 books of the Bible to this congregation, with most of those teachings being available uh, still online. I kind of biffed with teaching the book of Nehemiah after teaching 1 Peter, because once I teach 2 Peter to you, I will have taught the whole New Testament to this congregation. So I really missed my window there, but uh, you know, we, we, you guys have allowed me to be a person who communicates the word. When I was 18 years old, I sense God say to my heart by his spirit privately, i have not called you to other things. I've called you to teach my word. I've called you to communicate my word. And I've sought to throw my life into that. And I think that here in this passage, we're seeing a great reason for doing so. Renewal does not come without the word. So the first way that God renewed his people with the word had to do with their attitude. They esteemed the word. But let's more quickly look at the second two movements of this passage the second thing they did was they responded to it and nehemiah wanted them to respond by having joy because of the word let me explain to you what i mean Uh, they listened to the bible for six hours and in verse 9 it says they began to mourn and weep when they heard the words of the law now this wasn't because ezra was being dramatic in any way he wasn't manipulating them it was merely because They were grieved by the gap between what they were and what the Bible said they should be. We saw in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the word is profitable for correction. And the people were standing there corrected in their sins and they began to weep about it. But an interesting thing happened. Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites, they encouraged the people to stop weeping because they knew that that day was holy to the Lord, it says in verse 9. Why why did they think that that day was holy to the Lord? Well, in part, they thought it was holy to the Lord because the time that they were reading this scripture was the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, as we'll see in the third episode. And that was a feast. It was a festival. It was a time for celebration and partying and uh, eating and feasting together, celebrating the fact that they were God's covenantal group of people but another reason why they were supposed to walk in joy is because God was giving them another opportunity to repent to turn and to walk with him afresh God had brought them back from their Babylonian captivity so many years earlier for a reason and they should have celebrated and rejoiced that God was working to mature them God, in other words, was not willing to divorce them for their disobediences, but it was instead wooing them back into a love relationship with him. And because of this, because Nehemiah knew this, he's like, dude, this is a good thing that's happening to you right now. God is working in your life still. You're feeling convicted, but he has not banished you. He is drawing you in with his word and promises. Nehemiah made a brief speech. He doesn't really show up a lot in chapter eight, nine, and 10, but he shows up in verse nine and 10 of chapter eight. He gives this little speech and he says, go your way, Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a timely word. To me it was very Christ-like. It says of Jesus in Matthew 12 that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. And Nehemiah was living out Jesus's nature here. He would not let a bruised and smoldering people be completely broken or extinguished in this moment. He knew I could stand up here and just decimate everybody after they've interacted with the Bible for this long. But instead he says, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now this wasn't a flippant statement from Nehemiah. You know, this wasn't like a Hallmark card sentiment or platitude or a cat poster uh, idea or something like that. No, Nehemiah means something by this. And I say that because I've heard Christians use this phrase in that way. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And sometimes I've almost thought to myself, it almost sounds like what you're saying to me is, turn that frown upside down. Like what (laughs) does that mean? (laughs) You know, why? Nehemiah had a reason for saying that the joy of the Lord was their strength. What he's doing is telling them to be strong in the joy of God's gracious work in their lives. They'd read the book, they'd come face to face with their imperfections, but God had not eliminated them. He was reviving and drawing them. And they should have had joy that God was working in and on their lives. God's grace toward them should have given them a joyful strength according to Nehemiah. Now some people have what we might call the grace of joy. They're just a more naturally joyful people than others. I have one of those in my house, in my youngest daughter. She's just a joyful person. But that natural grace of joy is not what Nehemiah was referring to. He was referring not to the grace of joy, but the joy of grace. The ecstatic gladness that though we continually fall short, God's grace means that he's still at work in us today. And that knowledge of his grace should bring us to an intensity of joy. I mean, maybe even for you, as we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, you might remember the first study in Nehemiah chapter 1 where we talked about the gaps in the wall. Nehemiah grieved by those gaps. And we talked about the gap between what should be and what is in our lives. And maybe as we've been going through this, you've felt some of that in your own life. Yeah, there's what God wants for me, and there's what I'm actually experiencing and living. And perhaps this has caused some despair and some mourning inside your spirit. And I would never want to discourage godly sorrow, godly remorse, or godly mourning. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn. There's a place for that, a time for that. But I would also remind you to have joy that God is still working in your life, that he's not done with you. As long as you're alive and the gospel is true, His grace is sufficient for you. So repent, turn to him in obedience, and have joy that he is still shaping your life. Like a potter with a lump of clay on the wheel, shaping you into what he wants you to be, our father is our potter still shaping and transforming us. He's at work. So don't allow your sense of conviction to outweigh the knowledge that God is working in you. Don't allow the knowledge of your sin to overshadow the experience of Christ as your savior. Instead, let the conviction and the knowledge of sin turn into the strength of joy that God is working to reform and reshape and renew you. Be glad that he still has a plan for you if you'll submit yourself to it. He's not done with you. Where would we be today if Peter, the apostle, after denying Jesus three times, had convinced himself that there was nothing that could bring him back, even when Jesus tried to restore him, if he'd resisted and said, no, I failed too much, where would we be without that man's voice and ministry? Where would we be today if Peter, or Paul, the apostle, convinced himself that because before he came to Christ, he partook in the murder of Christians, that he had somehow disqualified himself from being used by God. We'd be at a loss, but we're so grateful that men like those allowed sorrow to turn into the joy of God's work in their lives. This is such an important part of the process of interacting with God's word. But one last thing that we should see, they, Esteem the word, they had the joy of the Lord because of the word, but then they obeyed the word. This is an important part of the process. Uh, the text tells us that it happened in verse 13 on the second day. So a group of leaders of the households came back. They wanted to study more. They wanted Ezra to teach them more. And so they studied in verse 13, the words of the law. And as they were reading the law, they came to Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, they found this thing about the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, a big part of the Feast of Tabernacles for the people of Israel, we don't practice this today. This has been fulfilled in Jesus. But a major facet of that Feast of Tabernacles was that the people of Israel would dwell in tents or booths, sometimes on their flat rooftops of their homes for one full week. So you can only imagine how exciting this was for all the kids you know, to be able to do this with mom and dad, you know, and to have, like, we're going to camp out for a full week and we're going to celebrate this uh, and, and remember the time that God set us free from our captivity in Egypt and we went camping. Uh, it was supposed to be like a year, and, but we ended up camping for 40 years out in the <laughs> wilderness. And so these guys now, years removed from that original camp out they read it in the word and they did what the word said the text tells us in verse 15 that they went to the hills around jerusalem and they cut down branches from all different types of trees to make their tents and these men did all this because they found it written in the bible now sometimes when we approach these old testament passages we think of it all having happened within you know just a few years like they had just had the Exodus and now they need to do this. But the book of Nehemiah really, some people call it the last book of the Old Testament because it is the final historic episode of the Old Testament era. They were many, many years and generations removed from the original Exodus. It had been a long time since they'd done this. In other words, there was nothing normal about this camp out for them, but they saw it in the Bible And they decided to do this thing that to them would have felt very strange and odd. To me, the Bible is amazing for a lot of reasons, but one reason in particular is because it's worked in many different cultures and time periods. Christianity has been effective in a lot of different cultures and time periods. In the best sense of the word, Christianity and the word attached to it is adaptable. In other words, it doesn't create one type of culture like you might find with the Quran or other religious texts. No, the Bible is adaptable in various cultures, but it redeems the cultures that it enters. And in saying that it's adaptable, what we don't mean is that it never confronts the cultures that it interacts with. That's what's fascinating about Scripture. It confronts everyone on all sides. Cultures that are conservative or cultures that are liberal are both targeted by the truths of God's word. Now what this means for us practically is that there are bound to be portions of the Bible that are strange to us, strange to you. They might not be strange to someone from a different culture, but they'll be strange to you. And I want you to think of this as a good thing. I think that you want this from the Bible. You see, if the Bible always agrees with your preconceived notions and ideas, I think it's safe to say that you're reading the Bible incorrectly. (laughs) There will be something in it that offends your sensibilities because it's able to do this in every culture. And these folks found something odd and outside their experience in the Bible, but they just determined to do it anyway. I love that obedience. Now, the sequence of the whole chapter is is beautiful. They understood the word intellectually. Secondly, they emotionally responded to the word. But lastly, they volitionally responded to the word. They, They obeyed. They did what it said. And what resulted from this pattern? Well, look at verse 17. Nehemiah said there was very great rejoicing. This rejoicing is the result of obedience. Now we might think that governing our own lives is a surefire path to happiness. And we live in a society that preaches that message. But if that were true, then we would live in the most satisfied and happy time of human history. The mantra or the dogma of our day is that you must be yourself, And you must live your truth. But rather than find generations, swaths of people who are satisfied, filled with joy, and fulfilled in life, what we find are alarming and increasing rates of anxiety, abuse, depression, and anger. The dirty little secret is that our culture's view of how the world works doesn't work. You see, contrary to popular belief, it's submission to God that brings true joy. Casting off the shackles of God has not led to the peace and happiness that many people have imagined. But God, through all of that, patiently waits. He extends his offer of salvation to those who would receive it through the blood of his only begotten son on the cross, offering forgiveness through Jesus so that a renewed relationship with him can occur. My hope in looking at this passage today is that this passage becomes more than just an inspiring story of a group of people who love the Bible for you. Here's what I hope. I haven't mentioned this up to this point. But my hope and my aim is that this passage, Nehemiah chapter eight, becomes a template for your everyday life and experience. I pray that every day of your life, you will humbly, worshipfully approach the word, open it up, discover what it says, receive God's grace for your failures and imperfections, and then move out by his spirit to seek to obey the word as it's been presented to you and the reality is that our church gatherings are designed to promote that template in your life what we do when we gather together is meant to be copied in every single day of your life beginning with worship praise prayer the giving of yourself and your finances to god followed by opening up his word wanting to hear whatever he has to say to you, saying, God, I need your grace for the parts of this where I have fallen short and now I receive that grace and move forward to walk today with you. My prayer is that this would be the template of your everyday life. And this sequence is the path that Jesus himself walked. He understood his mission, he embraced his mission, He incarnated and became one of us. He grew from a boy to a man and increased in wisdom and stature. And with that intellectual understanding, Jesus responded emotionally, which crescendoed in the garden of Gethsemane, where with great drops of sweat like blood, he prayed anxious prayers to his father. But that emotional response of sorrow turned into joy to do the Father's will. And then, lastly, praise God, Jesus obeyed. And he went to the cross doing what God had declared that he should do. And so really, this template is the Jesus template, and one that we want to follow every day of our life.